You're listening to audio from Ascend Church. For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ, visit ascendkc.org. Let's grab our Bibles as we take our seats and turn to Psalm 37. If you don't have a Bible, you can reach in the seats in front of you and grab Psalm 37 in those Bibles on page 4666. No, I'm just kidding. It's 466. But you can see my headspace is still in Revelation, and Lord willing, we will get back there in September. We have stopped at chapter 12. It is an amazing book. It has been a study that I think most of you have recognized it to be unexpected, and we will continue to unpack the unexpected beauties of Revelation in September. But we have spent the summer focusing on Psalms, and I've chosen each Psalm because I sense that the Holy Spirit has been leading me toward that, psalms that I find especially helpful or challenging or psalms with verses or concepts that have meant uh, a lot to me in my walk with Christ. And Psalm 37 is yet another example of that. I I read through the entire psalm in first service, but I actually went over, so I'm not going to read it. In second service, you can do that on your own, but what I do hope you will find as you read this amazing psalm is familiar text, but also repetition. Whenever we see repetition in the Bible or in a particular book or chapter, we acknowledge that it is the Holy Spirit through the human author drawing our attention to what is repeated, and I will highlight that as we study, but for me, specifically, the verse that really jumps off is Psalm 37.4. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. That is a passage, if you've studied the Bible or you're familiar with it, that you likely have heard, but also likely misapplied. So that, along with the opening verse in verse 1 of fret not, have drawn my attention to this text, and the study has been fruitful. I pray it will be so in your lives as well. You know, even as you read the first two words in our English translations, fret not, we are confronted with the potential of this concept of it being easier said than done. You ever read the Bible and see a command and come away thinking it's easier said than done? Maybe a command like, do not fear, or rejoice always. And again, I say rejoice. And you come away from a simple instruction like that saying, that's easier said than done. Maybe you've gone to a conference or listened to a sermon and you are following along. You might even be taking notes. And as you're doing so, you're thinking, oh, this is good. This, this could actually be a game changer. And then you leave that conference or that service and get splashed with real life like a splash of cold water in the morning. And you start to consider this is easier said than done. Or maybe as you have young children or you're trying to begin your career, you are stressed and overwhelmed, and you come across an old-timer in the church who says, Sonny, that's how I envision old-timers talking, Sonny, don't worry, it'll all get better. And in your mind, hopefully you don't say this, but in your mind you say, how can you even dream of relating to what I'm going through? My technology would run circles around your tradition. 
You don't have a clue, old timer, because what you say is easier said than done. Wouldn't it be nice if there was a formula that could get the easy to say things to completely done? That's what I think Psalm 37 is about. In fact, look at your big idea in your notes. God will always deliver his promise and complete his purposes in his perfect time. That is a statement of fact. If you study the Bible, that is a repetition from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22 and everywhere in between. The repetition is that God will be faithful to accomplish his purposes in his time. That is fact. But then there's also application, which is part of the big idea of Psalm 37, and that is if we follow his instruction, we will experience abundant peace. Wouldn't you like that? Wouldn't you like to be guaranteed that no matter what circumstance you faced in the past, the present, or the future, you could be guaranteed that you have access to and can experience peace and abundance? Easier said than done. But there's a formula that includes three questions, one statement that I pray we will be able to all see and then apply in Psalm 37. First, let's look at what the text says and then discover the question. The text says, look at verse 1, fret not. And so the question that we ask is, why? I mean, whenever we get instruction in life, don't we naturally gravitate toward why? As a parent, you, you teach your kids in their earliest days not to touch the glowing red coils on the stovetop, and inevitably, the question that follows is, why? I'm really into voices this morning. As a teacher, you teach kids math, that one plus one is two, and inevitably, the student will ask the question, why? And now with the new ways we teach math... There isn't really an answer to that question, apparently. Or an employer, you, you, you explain in orientation. These are the policies, these are the systems that we follow at our company, and inevitably, the employee will either think or will voice the question, why? And so this is a frustrating but natural question that when we see instruction, we ask, why? And so in the instruction of verse 1, we will actually see the important answer to the question, why? Verse 1, it says literally in the Hebrew, not. That's the first word. The first word will draw emphasis to the original audience, to the most important thing. And the author, in this particular case, David, which by the way, verse 25, tells us that he's writing at the end of his life. David says not. So the instruction that follows is a negative. Don't do this. And then the word that's translated in English, fret, is an interesting one in Hebrew. It means do not burn or be agitated. I don't know about you. There are plenty of things in life that burn me and agitate me. Now, what David says is what we're not to be burnt and agitated by is something that should burn and agitate us. So it, it begs the further instruction and explanation. But look at what he says. Do not be burned or agitated, look at verse 1, because of evildoers. This is translated the 
evildoers of Psalm 27, verse 2. These are people, beloved, listen to this, who are characterized by patterns of bending rules for their own advancement. Huh. Do you have anybody in your life that is characterized by these patterns? Anybody in your cubicles next to you? Anybody in your classroom? Anybody on social media that just seem to be bent on bending the rules for their own advancement? And David says, do not be burned or agitated by these people. And then he ratchets it up, verse 1, do not be envious of these people. And at this point, you might be tempted to say, well, this doesn't apply to me. But does it? Let me give you a couple case studies. Young ladies, have you ever noticed on social media that it seems like The young ladies who expose their skin and post things that are opposite the standards and glory of Christ seem to always end up with the cute guys. Or even some of you may say just guys in general I'd be happy with. You ever have a twinge of envy over those girls? You ever tempted to compromise? How about business people? You're in the workplace, and it seems like every time you turn around, the person on your team who gets the promotion is the person who's been deceitful, the person who lies, the person who cuts corners, the person who's actually able to take your idea and declare it as their own, the person who in front of the boss says you're the greatest, but around the coffee discussion says they're the worst, and yet they always seem to be the ones who get promoted. You ever have a twinge of envy? You ever tempted to compromise? See, we could go on and on and on, but the fact is, this is something David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, knew that human beings would struggle with, that the people of God would struggle with, especially as we endeavor to follow God's command, live for his glory, think of others more highly than ourselves. He knew the natural tendency for us is to burn and be agitated by evildoers and be envious of wrongdoers. So, beloved, when we see instruction in God's word, if you claim to be a Christian... This is our constitution. This ancient book is our law. If you are even considering Christianity, the the doorway to relationship with God requires a surrender to this book. And so when there are commands in the Bible, even when they fly in the face of our natural tendencies, even when they seem easier said than done, are what we must live by, And it begs the question, though, why? Why does God command these things? Why does he give us instruction that seems to be the opposite of our nature? And the answer to the question why is the foundation of our formula. I would encourage you to write this down. If we want to get to a place where we move said to done, it begins with the why that is answered with the answer perspective. It's perspective. The commands of God are intended to provide the bedrock of perspective. And beloved, listen, simply put, there are only two perspectives in the universe. There is the perspective of God and the perspective of man. There's the perspective of the city of God 
and the city of man. There's the perspective of the vertical and the horizontal, and the commands of God are intended to move our perspective to his. And so what he does in verse 2 is provide this as an illustration. So young girls, as you're looking at the cute guy that it seems like that TikTok influencer has gained because they're showing skin. The Bible gives us his perspective that those are not the boys you want. For business person, when you see the person that is cutting corners and deceitful and they're getting promoted and they're driving the cars and they're having the house and they have the vacation homes, the perspective of God tells you that's all vanity and hebel. It doesn't satisfy And that's the little golden nugget he gives us in verse 2. For they will soon fade like the grass. You see it in the text. And wither like the green herb. And this is an ancient historical context that the roofs of the ancient Near East would have grass and herbs on them. And because they were not connected to water sources, when the heat of the day came up, the plants would wither. And this is the imagery. And it also gets us to Christ, doesn't it? Because what does Jesus say to the woman at the well in John 4 that flows out of him? The living water. And so you see, even in this, if we do a little work, we can see that the wicked will wither when the heat gets turned up. When the standards of what God says will satisfy us are compared against what they're being satisfied by, because they're not connected to moisture, they will wither just like physical grass in the Near East did. So the answer to the question why when we see the commands of God that moves us from said to done is the bedrock of God's perspective. That's where we must begin. But number two, when we see the text in these verses give commands like trust and etal or et alia, which is the Latin for and others, It moves us to the question, how? See, when we're getting instruction and we see commands and we can begin to understand the why, naturally as human beings we move to, especially as Americans, make it practical. How do I do this? And that's what this section does. After David has given this opening salvo of the command, do not fret, do not be burned, do not be agitated by these things, then he gives practical answers by commands. And so we'll unpack those, but then I'm going to give you a key to anchoring these commands, and it will answer the question, how? Beginning in verse 3, trust. The word trust means to fix our mind. What are you fixing your mind on? This morning, what was the first thing as you realized you were awake that came to your mind? What's potentially distracting you right now? What are you thinking about as this week ahead of you begins to unfold? The text says we must trust, we must fix our minds. Then it also says in verse 3, we must befriend. The word befriend is a shepherding term. Interesting, isn't it, that David used that? It means to protect, to foster, 
to nurture, to spend time, to be consistent, to make a priority. And so you can begin to see that even in the commands that David is giving us to practically apply the how of God's perspective, we understand there are application points that we are responsible to fulfill. And then verse 4 occurs, the command to delight. This is an interesting one because, again, it's shown up on coffee mugs. I used to use this verse when I would sign my signature in professional baseball. And then I would explain to the kids what delight yourself in the Lord meant and tried to explain what give you the desires of your heart meant. Listen to what James Hamilton says in his commentary on Psalms. He says, to delight means to find pleasure in Christ the way the worldly find pleasure in the satisfaction of their desires. That's what delight means, to, to, to find pleasure and satisfaction in Christ, the way that our coworkers and our neighbors and the people online find satisfaction in nice things, in status, in relationships. He goes on to say, that it's like the way those with refined tastes enjoy their refinements. This reminds me of my journey with coffee. It's been a love-hate relationship. Remember my first experiences with coffee was smelling it in the morning when my grandparents were making coffee and they would get out their little mugs and pour Folgers, scoop after scoop after scoop. It is not the best part of waking up. I remember watching them sip it, and they're like, and I'm thinking, why would you do that to your mouth? And then I would be forced under child labor. No, I'm just kidding. But I would clean the dishes, and I would take their mugs, and it was stained. And then every once in a while, I'd catch a whiff of their breath, and I'm like, oh, no. Well, they let me taste it one time, and I was like, nope, never again. But then through the years, my friends would say, you've got to try coffee. And I'm like, nope, because I had PTS. But then they started explaining to me about beans and roasting and the African beans and the South American beans and blah, blah, blah turned to, huh, this is interesting. And then I had a friend that introduced me. He owned a cafe and ground his own beans to this cup of coffee that was sitting in front of me that I saw as Folgers, but it wasn't. He's explaining to me it's an Ethiopian roast and it'll kind of taste like there'll be potato notes. I'm like, what? He said, it'll start like this and then it'll move to this. And I'm like, okay, just the very nature, fact that you're explaining it like this, I got to try this thing. And guess what? It was good. And then other friends started telling me about lattes and cappuccinos and frappes. Actually, those are not real coffee. Frappes are not. And then you can add flavors to it. And before you know it, I, I acquired a taste for coffee. And I can tell you this, that through the years, I actually can take a cup of black coffee if it's done right. My point in sharing that is that it's an illustration of delight. You see, we all come out of the womb rebellious against God's standards. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 says, we all... Pursue our own desires before his. Romans 3, 10 through 12 says that we are not righteous. Psalm 51, 5 says that we are conceived in sin as sinners. And so we do not have a taste for God, let alone a refined 
taste, but what David is using by this amazing word is that if we will spend time fulfilling the commands of Scripture, we will begin to acquire a taste, and that taste will become refined. And so the desires of our heart will be for Christ greater than the desires for this world, and that's the journey of the gospel of sanctification. Some of you have experienced that and are experiencing that. Others of you, I hope this introduces it to you. There are more commands. Verse 5 says to commit. That means put your full weight on something. Beloved, I think so many times we attempt to obey the commands of scriptures in the same vein as we take a prescription on Netflix. That when it works for us, we keep it going. When it doesn't, we try something else. But that's not the commands of Scripture. The commands of the gospel and Scripture are we are all in full weight. And then I love this verse 7. It says, be still. Isn't that important when we think of the command of verse 1 to not fret? Do not be agitated. Do not constantly be upset and burn. And he says here, The word be still means to be incapacitated to do anything but joyfully marinate. I love that. I wish I applied this to my study of God's word, but so often the study of God's word is one of many busy activities of the day, and yet the command is be still. So as we think about practical, all I've done right now is share with you the commands, but I told you there's a key to these commands. And if we provide the combination of the commands with the key, we will get to the how of how we can move said to done. Look at the key. Verse 3, trust. Look at the phrase, in the Lord. Verse 3, befriend what? Faithfulness. This is a pattern of consistency and upholding God's standards. Verse 4, delight yourself in the Lord. Verse 5, commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him. Verse 7, be still before the Lord. Wait patiently for Him. It is all about being anchored to the character of God. My girls have been home, our girls have been home this summer. I love that. I love that they don't have studies. I love that they don't have to wake up early in the morning, but I do, and there's no any bitterness in that moment. But I love that we typically, after a hard day's work, we will sit down and watch a movie at night, and that's kind of my love language. And this last week, I was getting ready for work, and I was agitated. And I sat there, having studied this text, thinking, what is wrong with you, Jeff? And what I realized is I had gone two days without abiding in the Word. I had gone two days without being still before my God. But I certainly had time to watch two two two-hour movies. So no wonder I was agitated. No wonder I wasn't delighting in my Christ. And so here's a quote. Our thoughts and processing God's commands will be influenced by the loudest and highest quality of voices that we listen to. Look at your life. What is the highest quality and the most volume of voices you're putting in there? Is it social media? Is it YouTube videos? Is it podcasts? 
Is it entertainment? Is it sports? Is it unbelieving friends? All I'm saying is it's an opportunity for us to evaluate the how that leads to moving said to done. And so here's the answer to the how. Ensure that the loudest and most regular voices are the ones that point us to the character of God. Easier said than done, isn't it? And yet, doing so moves it from said to done. Number three. We'll see in this section of Psalm 37, two promises that God will cut off one group of people and that others will inherit. So cut off and inherit. So we've looked at the why. The why of God's commands is to give us his perspective. The how is to make sure that we have voices in our lives that are directing us to his character. And then he's giving this promises that the wicked are going to be cut off and the righteous will inherit. And the natural question for human beings is to say, when are we going to get there? That's natural, isn't it? We asked this of our parents when we drove cross country and Again, no bitterness here, but we didn't have screens, y'all. We had to play travel bingo, license plate game. I spy with my little eye. No matter, we are a generation that needs therapy. (laughs) But when we would drive cross country, like we had just left the neighborhood, and we were already asking the question, when? And so that's natural. And David understands that through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So we're seeing the answer to the why. We're seeing the how. And now we see these promises. And look at the promises. Verse 2 implies, and then verse 22 specifically says, the wicked will be cut off. And again, listen to what David and the rest of Scripture says about the wicked. These are badly motivated people just like we were before the gospel. They are bent on themselves. They hate the God of the universe. They may not say it. They may not even acknowledge it, but the Bible says they are, and they do. Listen to the descriptions. Verse 12, they plot against the righteous. Verse 12, they have hatred toward them. Verse 14, they draw their sword. They bend their bow against the poor and the needy. Which, by the way, let's just stop right there. Do you see verse 14, how it says poor and needy? There's a movement within Christianity that sees a verse like this and then basically says, well, then as Christians, we should make sure that everything that we do should be intended to get rid of these categories of poor and needy in our world, economically speaking. That's not what these verses mean. Not saying we shouldn't help those that are in need. Not saying that, that there isn't an example of Jesus to be able to recognize need and according to the gospel meet that. But, but these phrases here are actually imagery that if you understand it in context are not speaking about economics. They're speaking about the world system. And here's what I mean by that. When you see how the righteous are supposed to function, verse 11 says we're supposed to be meek, which means we're supposed to be humble. That means we're supposed to live out Philippians 2, which is thinking of others more highly than ourselves. What happens in the workplace when that is our motivation? It doesn't often work out. What happens when we are upright, verse 14 says, meaning that we are living according to God's standards and not the standards of the city of man. Well, we don't often get the promotions. 
We don't often get what the world says is success. So the world is looking at righteous people and saying, wow, they're poor and they're needy, and so I'm going to attack them. It says in verse 21 that they borrow and don't pay back. Again, this is not focusing on something that's literal. What it's saying is this is imagery to expose that they're only focused on themselves. I need money. I'll borrow it from you. I could care less paying it back. That is selfish. Man, these are wicked, evil people, which, by the way, every human being not connected to the gospel of Jesus Christ is described in these terms. And you may say, well, there's people that are benevolent. There's people that I know in my life that are kind. Yes, but if it's not motivated by faith and worship, Isaiah says it's filthy rags. So even the most benevolent unbeliever in the world has somewhere down at the root of their motivation something selfish. And the Bible is simply exposing that. And so we see these people who are assembling against the Lord and against his anointed. And just like Psalm 2.4 says, David says, the Lord laughs. Do you see that in verse 13? And then he says in verse 13, he knows his day is coming, the day of judgment, when verse 15, their sword will be broken, uh, their, their bow will be defeated. Verse 20, they will perish. Verse 20, they will vanish. And as you're reading this, you're like, come on, and also win. One of the greatest threats to trusting the one promising is the uncertainty of the when, isn't it? Whenever our parents promise something, our employer promises something, our teacher promises something, we want to know the when. And when the when is open-ended, the threat to trust increases. So David answers the when in a very interesting way. And the key to the when is embedded in the promise. So we see the promise of the judgment and the cutting off of the wicked, but then here's the promise to the righteous who by their patterns of life of humility verse 11 are shown to be true followers of Christ. It promises verse 11 verse 22 and twice in the next section they will inherit the land. That would be a phrase for you to write down because this phrase actually brings the Old Testament and the New Testament together and gives us hope just like the book of Revelation. Why does David repeat four times that the righteous will inherit the land? Well, it has its roots back in Genesis 12. You can write that down. I'll just read it to you. Genesis 12 is the call of Abraham. He's calling Abraham out of his homeland away from his comfort, and he says in verse 1, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. So in that opening call of God to Abraham, there is a promise that God will give him land. That is the beginning of the down payment of God, the God of the universe, introducing himself to Abraham, is that I promise you I will give you land. And then in verse 13, after Lot chooses the fertile land of Sodom and Gomorrah, and Abraham goes to the west of the Jordan River, the Lord says, lift up your eyes and look at all this land. And verse 15 says, for all the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. So you see, God is giving more details about the land. 
Then when you get to chapter 15 and Abraham is given more details and God gives the imagery of him walking through these split up animals as a torch and as a pot and Abraham has this deep sleep. Part of the promise that is reiterated there are more details about the land. So you can see as the Jews would have been growing up with an understanding of these first five books of the Bible, the land was very important. And in fact, the whole book of Joshua is about the conquest of what? The land, the land of Israel. The land that God promised in Genesis 12 that he reiterated in 13, that he continued to provide details for in 15. And we see all of these battles over the land that God promised. But then listen to this. Joshua 21, verses 43 through 45. Thus, the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers. And they took possession of it, and they settled there, and the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all the enemies into their lands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. That's pretty awesome, isn't it? I would submit to you this. There's a misunderstanding about how the Old and New Testament fits together. These verses tell us that the promise to Abraham was fulfilled. There's nothing that has not been fulfilled. There's no land that God had promised to the Jews that had not been acquired. This means that the promise of physical land had been accomplished. And David is reiterating that in Psalm 37 because at this time he only had access to, most likely, the first five books of the Bible. And what David is acknowledging in Psalm 37 is the fact that the land is equal to God's character. That the promise of God is always intended to draw the one promised to God's character. These promises, including the inherit the land, four times given in Psalm 37, is intended not to focus on the physical, but on the character of God. So here's what I submit to you. David is describing the land as one would describe the furniture in a dimly lit room. David is looking at the furniture of the land of Israel and describing it as the demonstration of God's faithfulness, as the demonstration of God's character. But as we go through the New Testament, the light is turned on through Christ and the rest of the Bible to understand it was never about the physical land of Israel. Listen to this. We learn that the physical of the Old Testament was intended to be the shadow pointing to the spiritual substance. The physical of the Old Testament, it is literal land. It is literal plot points on the map. And so was the rainbow after the Noahic flood. So was circumcision in Genesis 17. So were the festivals. So was the day of Sabbath. These were literal and physical events in the Old Testament, but they were never intended to be the end game. They were always intended to serve as shadows, as patterns, pointing us to the spiritual substance who is Christ. 
And so as David is describing the furniture in the room and saying four times inherit the land, he is speaking of the physical land of Israel. That's what he understood. That's the vocabulary. That's the concepts that the Jews of David's day would have had to associate land with God's character. But we, after the completion of the entire Bible, understand it was never about the land of Israel. It was about what those shadows pointed us to, which is Christ. So the answer to the wind is this. The when is the day of judgment that gives way to Christ's second coming and the new Jerusalem. When will the wicked be cut off? When will the righteous inherit the land? When Christ comes and sets up his kingdom. Not the millennial kingdom, the eternal kingdom. And until then, we find our rest by abiding in Christ, the true substance of these shadows, including the physical land of Israel. Last week, I came down pretty hard on the men in this church, didn't I? I'm like, man, why aren't you reading God's word? Let me give you the benefit on the other side. The more we abide in Christ, the more he is the highest quality and loudest voice in our lives. The more we will be equipped to be able to conquer and endure no matter what is going on in our lives, no matter what temptations we face. And so, beloved, you want the, you want the silver bullet. You want the golden pill. I've run out of analogies. You want to be able to feast with the nutrition that will make you exactly the man of God he wants you to be and that will most satisfy you. Don't miss the opportunity daily to abide in Christ. The privilege is ours that the wind will be the second coming. The wind will be what Revelation describes as the seventh seal, the seventh bowl, the seventh trumpet. We'll get back to that in September. But until then, as we wait, we get the down payment today to abide in Christ, to enjoy his Holy Spirit, to fellowship in a beauty, beautiful uh, community of imperfect disciples following a perfect Christ. This is the when. And so the answer to the question when, when we consider that it's easier said than done, is to abide in Christ until he brings final judgment And sets up his eternal kingdom. The why of God's commands is perspective that is bedrock. The how is to follow his commands that get us to the character of God. The when is his final judgment and his new Jerusalem. And we get to enjoy the down payment of that right now. But then number four, the text talks about salvation and judgment, which points us to the statement, which is the who. It's who. Much of this section is review and retelling, and so I'm not going to go over all the details, but I'm going to set it up through a summary. The Bible wants us to remember the reality that we live in. It wants us to be able to see us for who we are. It wants us to be able to understand that even the the longest tenured believer in this room is susceptible to temptations. Take heed When you think you stand, lest you what? Lest you fall. The world around us is bent 
on being enemies of the gospel, therefore being enemies of us. The allurement of the world is real. It does glitter. It does appear that it will satisfy. The Bible wants us to remember reality. And that's what we see in these texts. Verse 32, they're keeping watch to put the righteous to death. Verse 35, the wicked are ruthless. And here's the deal. The wicked are not ruthless only in an outward, clear way. They're also ruthless in a passive and very undetectable way. Verse 35, they do succeed. That's why the psalmist says, fret not over evildoers and be envious over them. Because guess what? They do succeed. The girls who show the most skin do often have cute boys. The business people that cut corners and deceive often get the promotions. The Bible is reminding us that does happen. Don't be fooled. Don't get lured into sleep. He also wants us to understand that the the fulfillment of of verse 4 is not health, wealth, and prosperity. The desires of our heart are not in horizontal terms. They're in vertical terms when we're delighting in God. And so these passages remind us that even the Christian will plummet. Look, look at verse 24. This is interesting. Though he fall, in the Hebrew, it describes the imagery of, even though they don't have planes back then, somebody jumping from a plane and plummeting. Righteous people will plummet. They will experience seasons and experiences of life that don't go well for them. But the imagery here in verse 24 is that Christ is right next to us holding our hand so that when we get to the bottom, we don't splat. We land exactly as he intended. And sometimes that's recalibration and success. Sometimes that's him calling us home. And sometimes that's somewhere in between. This is reality. Verse 33, we will experience the power of the wicked, but he won't let us be overcome by them. Verse 33, even the righteous will face trial like every other human, but on that day the judge will not see us, he will see his son. I don't know about you, but do you ever sit through a class or a conference or read a book and you're tracking and you're like, oh, I get it, I I get it, and then the last chapter is written. Or the, or, or the last class session is given and you're like, wait, 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 I don't get it. I mean, here we've explained the why is the foundation of perspective. The how is following God's command that connects us to the character of God. The when is the, the final judgment and the final salvation. And we get to experience a down payment on that now. But then we get to the end and we're like, wait, the righteous will plummet. The righteous will experience the power of the wicked. The wicked are keeping watch to put the the righteous to death. And, And we might be tempted to say, wait, I don't get it. It is easier said than done. But what David is doing through his life, verse 25 says, I have been young and I am now old. He reflects in verse 31, the law of God. You combine experience with the word of God that David unpacks, and you realize it's ultimately all about the who. It's all about the who, the one who will bring salvation and judgment. The one who defines the terms. The one who has written this book. And in these verses, we see the phrase, the Lord, seven times. David is finishing this amazing psalm drawing our attention 
from the command to the who. This is the formula of moving said to done.